You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Uh, hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Joe Bill. Hey. Uh, Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks, Louis. Good, good to be here. Thanks, man. Uh, um, Joe is one of the founding members of the Annoyance Theater, a uh, sometime teacher at the I.O. Is that right, Phil? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I think I'm doing summer intensive. Cool. One year. half of the legendary improv duo Bass Prov. Uh, and just an amazing guy. Really happy to have you here. Oh, thanks, man. Um, uh, so you just got back from London and France? Just got back from London and France. Yeah. Did uh, five days in London and taught some workshops over there. Uh, I do a duo with a buddy of mine from Winnipeg named Lee White. Mm. And so we, he did not go to France with me, but we have, I'm going to Finland and Switzerland and Germany and playing with him at the end of this month in June. So we figured let's get one in. Uh, and then I wanted to get my body clock right because I've always wanted to go to France mm. and uh uh, I thought before I went there that I was serviceable in my ability to speak French. Uh-huh. And then sadly I found out, no. They're, they're pretty, I was there for for uh, a week one time in college. Where'd you go, Paris? Yeah, Paris. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much. The, they're pretty like open if you're trying to speak the language. I found everybody yep. very helpful and nice and pleasant. Yeah, I think it's um, their first, imp- I had a cab driver and so I was in the, the west of France first in a little town called Brest, which is in Britannia or Breton or whatever. Huh. Uh, and so I, I kind of got it polished up a little bit there. And the, for me, the proposition is, even though I studied French for 12 years in college or in a you know, grade school, high school, college, I live in Chicago. So there's more Spanish around me and I speak, I speak equally poor Spanish as I do French, uh-huh. but, but the Spanish has corrupted my French. Uh-huh. So in, in, uh, in Brest, I, I separated that out and it's like, okay, I've, I've got some basics and I got in the cab in Paris to go, uh, you know, wherever the hell I was staying. And the cab driver, I'm like, okay, it's, uh, I practiced at the airport, like saying what I needed to say to get to where I needed to go. And then I just got in the cab and froze. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was one of those, uh, pardon, monsieur, uh, je suis American. He's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, then I was just quiet and, uh, I told him the address and then we got in this traffic. It was horrible traffic. And, uh, then I collected myself and I said, uh, uh, c'est la trafic typical pour le dimanche. And he was, oh, uh, oh, oui, oui, dimanche, oh, le trafic uh, horrible. And so, okay, cool. And then all of a sudden, you could just see his shoulders relax. Yeah, yeah. So it's not some douchebag American who's not going to keep trying. Yeah, but. that's, I think, all they want is, is yeah. you make half the effort and then they treat you like an individual. For sure. And then once they feel invited to correct you. Yeah. Like sometimes we'll correct somebody, you know, you, you meet somebody from Europe, they come over here, you have a few beers and then you see that they want to know the right word to say. So now you, you, you learn the signals of like, okay, I'll correct you here. Yeah, yeah. Then the same thing applies in the opposite. And then once you get that, then you're like fast friends. Yeah. Did you do a show in, in France? Yeah, I did. Uh, so the festival and it was called the Subito, uh, the group is called Subito in Brest mm-hmm. and they do a festival. Oh God. Maybe it's just the Subito festival. And so in Europe, a lot of times the model is you'll go over there, you'll be part of a festival cast and they'll have, you know, four or five people from afar and then four or five local people. So you've got 10 to 12 people in a cast and then different people teach different approaches, different shows, different styles. Mm-hmm. And so there may be 10 shows during the week and you're in four or five of them mm-hmm. and, and maybe directing a thing as well. That's awesome. Yeah. T- super cool. And there they were more open to uh Shows both in French, shows in English, and then mixed shows. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting proposition just about when you're in Europe, uh, Germany's like this too. You have to just slow down. Mm-hmm. And it's almost you play a little bit a version of the mammoth game where you find your way to repeating things kind of naturally and organically and then underscore it with some emotion and then they get it. Mm-hmm. But if you, uh, we were talking about Rosowski before we're doing a show in Germany and Rosowski and I just fly. Yeah. And if you're just blathering out English at, you know, Indy 500 pace, the, it's hard for them to track with it and they get frustrated. Yeah. So, so I did like, uh, 
uh, probably six, uh, six shows in Britannia and then in Paris. Uh, I went there and I saw a show on Sunday. I was exhausted uh, after drinking all night uh, Saturday night. And then Monday I went to a rehearsal for a musical improv show that was in French. And I was tracking along okay with it. And I got the idea of what was going on. Uh, then I had a day off Tuesday, which was wine day, and that was fabulous. And then Wednesday we did the musical, and it was freaking. First of all, all the improv theaters in France are like one or two stories below the ground, uh-huh. and it's like so you imagine it's real easy to imagine yourself like in World War II, and this yeah. is where people hid and shit like that. Yeah. And everything kind of smells like wet brick, almost moldy, but not quite moldy. So that smell of both brick and mold, right? Can yeah. you smell that? Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very vividly. <laughs> um, but it also, it, it provides a very intimate setting. And then, like, the sound is pretty live. And so the uh, that show was really interesting because I, I was... I mean, I never get nervous before an improv show, but I was like, yeah, rehearsal went too well. Mm-hmm. I, I should have fucked up more in rehearsal, but I didn't. And they're, the way they launch it is they'll take a line from the audience, uh, just a, a single line, and there's three 30-second silent scenes. Each one has to end with the line. They tend to be a little you know, kind of jokey. It's a bit, and you cap it. And so the audience then chooses which one of those 30-second scenes will be the first scene of the musical. Oh, interesting. So I was of the mind, like, oh, I'll just go do a suck 30-second scene because I don't want to be the opening scene (laughs) in this musical. And then, of course, the funniest guy in this cast goes out for this scene, and we crush just doing some bit where we're, you know, plucking hair and out of our nose and whatever. So this this scene gets chosen. We go first for the musical. And now the game within the scene is which one of these people is going to be the hero for the hero's journey because they're big into their narrative over Mm -hmm. there, right? So I summoned the French. I I thought, okay, I'm going to totally put it on him. And I said something like, uh, uh, Aujourd'hui, c'est le jour pour... Uh, un fantastique uh, marage or something like that. I tried to say, indicate it was his wedding. Uh-huh. And he said to me, though I didn't understand every word, I clearly knew, that's right, I'm so excited, my brother, that you're getting married. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so it's okay, so now it's my story, and it's and now the panic goes, and I don't know what the hell's going on. Uh but what I saw was five improvisers who were all looking at me wide eyed and going like, yeah, come on, let's go. Let's, you know, whatever, whatever, make us play. Yeah. And they said, if you need to speak a little English, do, but just try to speak French. And even if you say something wrong, it's OK, we'll deal with it. And I just thought, oh, man, yeah, that's kind of the same thing we do like over here. If somebody comes over, it's like, yeah, just fucking say anything. We'll deal with yeah. it. Um, and I also at that moment realized as sort of an ambassador of Chicago improv and having hosted all these internationals there that I've for at least 10 years given the worst advice ever to those people, which is just relax, just relax. Don't be nervous. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. We're here to take care of just relax. And it's so pointless because yeah. nobody could have told me to relax because it's just impossible. Yeah. And somehow... Uh, all I knew was I had to get the girl in the end and I, somewhere along the way I said the French words uh, for I have goat legs and I have no idea what it was but I said something and the guy that's like oh, well, and I went off stage and, and I'm like what the hell was that all about well another scene was going a guy leans over he's like hey you have goat legs I'm like, how did I get goat legs no you said you have goat legs oh, shit. <laughs> so they just I mean it was it was amazing that uh as improvisers like we're part of this giant tribe all over the planet and yeah. it's there's these five people that are great at what they do and they just made everything that I said make sense yeah and somehow through some miracle right at the end of the show I the the seminal moment that had to happen I was clued in and I reacted the way I needed to react and it made everything made sense. Yeah. And it was like, Oh my God, I can't like, I, I, that was the first time in years. I don't know that I've ever walked off an improv stage feeling my bones shake, Yeah, but it was like, I told some people that doing that show was like dropping acid, getting on a roller coaster that largely took you through a hell ride through a French haunted house. Yeah. And somehow it all made sense. That's so interesting. It, it, cause it, it's like putting a person in the position where you got to like experience a really horrible 
degree of terror. Yeah. And you just have to put total confidence that the people around you aren't going to fuck you over. And it, I don't know, you, you must come through that experience kind of with like different brain chemistry going on after that. Because it's, it's a kind of like fear and unpreparedness that you don't really have to face too often. Even, right. even as an improviser, yeah. you get good enough at improv that you don't really have that kind of panic too much anymore. No, never. But well, and I think, I think the other thing, you know, I figured the way that I would play, like, I felt my body wanting to close up and like, yeah. you know, like get the whole hand clenchy thing. And I thought, no, I'm going to at least just, I'm going to say things confidently. And even if they're the wrong thing, I'm going to own the vulnerability of being wrong. Yeah. So on the one hand, I trust them. But on the other thing, I'm going to give them my best effort and I'm going to completely accept that, uh, my, my, my undercurrent of emotion in this whole piece is going to be confidence. And I will, uh, uh, take my, one of my scene partner, uh, Jill Bernard's note is I I will fail beautifully. Mm -hmm. And, um, and boy, that, that worked and the audience loved it. They loved me allowing myself to be vulnerable and just like not know what was going on and still being in slightly in attack mode. Yeah. So, uh, um, it makes me think of, of sometimes in classes I'll have, I'll have someone where English is a second language Mm. and a lot of times in them trying to be as precise as possible and not say anything wrong or, or, or kind of show that vulnerability that mm-hmm. their English isn't perfect, mm-hmm. they end up either not making much sense, mm-hmm. things just get like really bizarrely goofy in a way that's hard to justify, right. or there's that kind of um, uh, uh, panic, protect me kind of energy off of them. Yeah. And so often when the scene is over and we're kind of like talking through it or making an adjustment, even in broken English, what they're saying is like, oh, that's perfect. Just say that. Yeah. It, say it with with breaks and hiccups and everything. It, it, it totally is of like, oh, the sincerity behind what you mean, even though what you're saying is yeah. all over the place. Yeah. What you mean is communicating itself 100%. And that's what everybody's responding to. That's what everybody wants to be tapping into. Yeah. It's a really awesome thing to get to have that experience yourself. For sure. Well, and it's and it's also the, because um, I'm a psychology nerd, yeah. but the, when, when you're on stage, your self-criticism is amplified. Yeah. And so your measurement of right and wrong and your self-talk and you know, all that shit that wants to be precise, it gets in the way of the same stuff that could come out in just an authentic conversation to mm-hmm. debrief afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, I mean, you're spot on. It's like, just be like that on stage. But it's also, it, in a way, it's like like the note I said was bullshit, which is just like relax and speak. But yeah. it's 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 not relax. It's just like enjoy your nervous energy yeah. and, um, you know, be be connected. Uh I, I do a lot of a lot of my teaching and stuff is emotion based, and mm-hmm. so it's like, what state are you in? What state are you in? Or what state am I in? What state are you in? Mm-hmm. What is that? How does that mean I receive you? How are you reacting to the way I am? And that I can get a lot of mileage out of that, just in terms of giving myself an educated guess about what's going on. But I think that you lose that capacity for empathy on stage mm-hmm. when your brain is in that sort of analysis paralysis, what's the right word thing. Totally. Yeah. It's interesting. It's really, I, I know I'm still reflecting on it. Like I'm still like, okay, now how can this make me a better teacher? Not just over in Europe when I go, but like for people that come over here, you know, like what's the note, what's the note. And I got that improv thing. You know, we all fixate on, on totally. the, the improvisers. Totally. It's that same thing where like, you're in an, you're in an improv show and you're doing a scene and then like a fact comes out about, you know, George Washington, uh, crossed three rivers before he crossed. I said, did he? Yeah. And you get off stage. It's not like, how was the show? It's like, okay, we're, let's Google George Washington. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, did he cross three rivers? And you know, uh, but it's that same thing. It's like, what's the note? What's the fucking note? What yeah. is it? What is the note? So I don't know. It'll hopefully it'll, one time it'll come out yeah. and I'll go, Oh, that's it. Yeah. And then I'll write it down. I want to pick your brain on something really quick. Sure. I was thinking about this when you were saying about that feeling of just being totally protected and supported by these five awesome guys mm-hmm. in France who know what they're doing. I, I might be getting this wrong, but I remember a quote from somewhere that I think goes back to Martin Devant. Mm-hmm. Uh, something to the effect that your job is to make it easy for the people around you. Your job is to make the people around you feel feel taken care of or feel protected mm-hmm. somehow. Am I mm-hmm. getting that right or not? 
I, um, it sounds right. Yeah. That, that sounds like something that Martin would say. And as I sort of, as I, yeah, as I think about that, that seems, I think that seems right. It's kind of in that, it's in that idea of taking care of each other. Yeah. But, but like, I like the angle of like, you know, make people f- around you feel comfortable or confident or connected or. Yeah. I remember reading something, he he would have like an eye contact exercise in classes, Mm -hmm. and it was about measuring the moment where eye contact starts to become uncomfortable for you. So it's just tuning into your your threshold, your vulnerable threshold, and then putting your focus not on on locking in with somebody, Mm -hmm. but putting your focus on making it easy for that person to lock in with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, uh, as, as I remember that exercise... Um, it was also, it's, uh, personal space and proximity and mm-hmm. what proximity does with eye contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being in a class with Martin and there was a guy who was, I think a former cop. He was about probably about five, seven, five, eight, but kind of bulky, mm-hmm. bald headed dude looked like a former cop. And he played kind of aggressively and was very declarative and forward and absolute and direct in his speech. And uh, the vulnerability thing wasn't there. So then, and he wasn't really willing to make like eye contact for a long time and kind of hit eyes and then look away. Mm-hmm. So then Martin said, you know, make, uh, it was with a woman. He said, you know, now make eye contact with her. And, uh, and he made her, they started about six feet apart. And then he'd say, no, take one step closer to him. And then he'd ask, you know, does that different? And one step closer. And is that different? And one step closer. Is that different? And as she got closer, this guy became like a little bit more, of the, you know, that male energy of like, yeah, baby, uh-huh. yeah, 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 that's right. And so a little more alpha, a little more seductive, whatever. Um, and, but still like of this same energy that he'd been playing with. And then he switched me in with the girl. And so, and I'm six, five, so, you know, a good deal taller than this guy. And he made me do the same thing. And I had to take one step and then one step and one, and this dude like couldn't make eye contact with me. Uh, and when I got right up and then he made me stand like right up. So I'm looking down, you know, into his face, looking up at me. And it was, and he, it was total, it was like, it was like Martin DeMott's version of the dog whisperer. Uh. (laughs) You're not the alpha dog anymore. And, um, and I think that's, uh, like I love, I love the idea of, um, personal space and distance. And like, we all have a different comfortability level with like closeness. Mm -hmm. And so part of that, I think part of what I read instinctively is, and I think I have to, cause I'm a giant person. Mm -hmm. There's some people that I can take them out of their comfort zone if I get too close Mm -hmm. or if they have to look up too much. Um, but I also, I also think that's what fed my choice in doing this musical to, I will make them more comfortable if I give them confidence, even in my failing, mm-hmm. than I will if I give them insecurity right. and like, oh, I'm fucking this up or I'm no good or any of that. Yeah, yeah. There, I um, in when we do jam shows, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll deliberately ask to be put with like the newest person in the room mm-hmm. or, or the most scared person in the room. It's something I've grown to really love. Yeah, and because I love that feeling. I go completely out of my own head uh-huh. when I sense that someone's really, uh, you know, just in that like questioning, nervous, horrible state. Right. And then everything just becomes so incredibly clear because uh-huh. it's the entire job is just energetically to communicate. You're doing great. This yeah. is great. And I like that feeling that it gives me just this kind of sense of certainty that I'm doing great too. And it's not like a positive affirmation. No. It, it's, it's just this thing of like, oh, I have a purpose now. And my purpose is to help you feel good. Yeah. And, and, and so I end up feeling a lot better too because I'm not in that magnified headspace of second guessing. Was this right? Was this funny? Was this yes and incorrectly? Was I heightening? Was I letting go? All that shit yeah. goes out of the window. It's just, I guess I'm like curious about that relationship. Cause I know that like Martin DeMont was a big influence on Mick. Yeah, me too. Um, and I'm very interested in that relationship of the kind of annoyance approach of take care of yourself and, and, and own your shit and playful hilt um, versus the more, seems to me Martin approach of of 
um, create a safe space for the people around you. They seem to be two sides of the same coin of, mm-hmm. of creating this feeling of protecting your content on stage or protecting, and maybe not your content, but pr- protecting the, the process of working together. Yeah. It, well, that makes me think of like, I think the greatest thing I really ever learned from Mick and like, I was just so, we were so fortunate to have this group of people come together in college and like with Mick at the helm and like just the process of working together. Uh, but like really Mick is a genius about context. Mm-hmm. And so it's the context of the moment. It's the context. Once we got to annoyance, there's like all these crazy, you know, Island of Misfit toys, neuroses and addictions and abuse and all kinds of shit people have come through. And, you know, we weren't aspiring to be this shocking theater, but Mick was really vigilant about making sure that our dirty, our vulgar, our shocking, our, uh, our vulnerability was always protected contextually. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was talked about so much. And I, I think maybe, you know, when you say it's two sides of the same sides of the same coin, I think you're right because if the context is there, you can take care of anything. And mm-hmm. some of that context is, you know, the words that are said and the way that you frame it. Some of that context is also your manner and your behavior within whatever the situation or the scenario is. Mm-hmm. And some of it is, you know, that <clears throat> I think the most misunderstood annoyance thing, or maybe the, maybe, maybe those of us that are, Older, look. I think we have different takes on what does it mean take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it means know how you are and be true to how you are, and being willing to evolve uh, and change and heighten and explore through that, like in the scene. How do you mean, like emotionally? I think emotionally, like like. And so I focus a lot on emotion, mm-hmm. and I think when Mick talks about your deal, you know, I mean, it can be like snapping your fingers is the one I always remember him doing, or you know, playing with a yo-yo, whatever your deal is, hold on to your deal. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people took that as don't ever stop doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, and there was a time when I was teaching at the Annoyance in the early days, like. Uh, I would teach the level right before Mick and I would send, you know, and I was all about the environment back in the old days, like be, be affected by your environment, find the variety in your environment, um, allow yourself, you know, repetition is an invitation for emotional investment, emotional discovery. And I'd get people there and they could, you know, they could build a birdhouse and go through like 10 different emotions and, you know, what's, it's a metaphor or whatever, but then they get to mix class and then they just keep hammering and hammering and hammering and mm-hmm. hammering and nothing was changed. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, people just keep doing this shit over and over, but they're not listening and they're not. And it's like, I don't know, man. It's, um, and I think for me, it's, uh, for me, hold on to your shit. Just that leads me to. Like, I think play to the top of your intelligence is a pretty overrated note. Mm-hmm. I understand why it exists, but I think a more useful one, or at least in the way that I play and the way that I teach is uh, play to the top of your character's integrity. Mm-hmm. So the thing I take from annoyance is start right now, be here right now in character. And in the first 10 to 15 seconds of the scene, decide or discover how you feel. Mm-hmm. And then allow how you feel to affect how you say what you say. Allow how you feel to affect what, uh, how you do what you do. And you don't even have to put a label on how it is that you feel, but it's just like being in touch with your manner and then being at least consistent with, if not perpetuating or heightening that, being consistent with uh, playing honest moments and discoveries based on what your scene partner goes. And it's like, if I shift... I'm not shifting because I'm deciding to shift because I'm tired of this emotion. I'm shifting because you've affected me and now I must go here. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I think, uh, I'm going back to that, the same side or the different sides of the same coin, which is, um, at annoyance, we do play, you know, we play fast and hard and strong and bold and like all this other shit, but the agreement, the agreement backstage was that we're we're gonna if we're gonna go down in flames we're gonna go down attacking we're not gonna go down you know being sissies about it and i go back even further to when you were talking about being on stage with that new person Mm -hmm. and you see their nervousness or you see them wide-eyed or whatever and and my question to you is when you see them 
is part of your feeling good about that or feeling confident about that tied to your remembering when you were like that? Maybe. Yeah. I think maybe. It might be tied to remembering that feeling of playing with people who just seem cool with everything. Yeah. And and so some of that energy gets into you that like, oh, okay, it doesn't have to be more than what it already is. And, and yeah. even my stumbling not knowing what I'm doing seems to be fine and isn't rattling anybody. Nobody seems bothered by it. Nobody seems to be wagging a finger or trying to help me or fix it. It, yeah. it, it just seems fine to people. And so it calms you down and, and you can kind of get to the task at hand, which, right. which I think is just get your attention off yourself and get it into the scene that you're in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, um, I would play the lottery sometimes at, um, at IO and that's where they take a, uh, level one, level two, three, four, and five student mm-hmm. and they become a core cast. And then those five people play with five veterans, mm-hmm. uh, different five veterans every week. And it was, you know, like I hit that age somewhere in my forties. And when I was still teaching regularly at IO where it's like, Oh shit, I'm that, I'm that old guy now that this young kid looks up to and th- they think I'm somebody that's not just an old improviser. Right. <laughs> it makes sense. Like, <gasps> right. And they're scared of you. Yeah. They're scared yeah. of you or they don't want to fuck up or they don't, you know, it's like, yeah. Oh no, I'm going to ruin my scene with Joe Bell. Yeah. It's like, Oh, trust me. I've been in thousands of horrible scenes that are my fault. Um, but the one thing that I always, if I need to, the one thing that will always work in that context is however they're behaving, that's the reason that you love them. Yeah. And, and I, and I would tell them that I would love them because they're running off the mouth or like, they could be doing the worst, making the worst improv choice of perpetuating, but that's why I love you. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's my suggestion to all veteran players. When you play with somebody new, just try it. It's awesome. You know, it it makes me think a little bit of, because like what you're saying about the early days of annoyance, Mm-hmm. And and everybody kind of bringing their own, their own um, life shit, life shit, and <laughs> yeah. problems and everything. Like everything's out there, yeah. And everything's going to be used <clears throat> to produce the material that you're producing. Mm-hmm. There's an element of like total acceptance to that. Mm-hmm. But to me, it, because like you know, I, I, I preach acceptance in my classes. It's a big mm-hmm. thing in my classes. I use acceptance. And I don't use yes and. I, That's I, great. I specifically tell people I'm not interested in yes and. I, I think the spirit is right, but mm-hmm. it, 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 it's like a little virus that gets into your head and it gets you thinking yep. badly about things. Yep. But I'm big on acceptance. I, I think you're right on point. I endorse your thinking. Thanks. Yeah. And, but sometimes it, it, even the word acceptance to me feels like a fall short because it, it has kind of like you know, hugging yourself overtones a little bit. That's not exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. There's a sense where acceptance and ownership are the same thing and turn Mm -hmm. into the same thing. Mm -hmm. That same, in that same way that this other person's nervousness and craziness and and whatever they're giving is what you're going to love about them. Mm -hmm. You're simultaneously completely accepting Mm -hmm. what they're giving, completely accepting your part in that process Mm -hmm. and also taking ownership of it. Mm-hmm. You're not accepting it in a way that seems kind of fake or, or seems kind of unafraid to engage with them. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, I think um, it reminds me, I hear Rizowski's voice in my head going, oh, that happened. Yeah. That exists. Yeah. This is. No, this is truth. This exists. Yeah. And so, yeah. And now? And now what? Um, and it's, for me, acceptance is the acknowledgement of what is. Mm-hmm. And without the need to get your label maker out and label everything that is right now, it's like, oh, this is right right now. And so if this is, you know, uh, now what? And uh, yeah, I I think I also do not, I don't think I use yes and unless it's just like maybe if it's like a group of really like if I have to teach like high school kids or college kids or Mm -hmm. something and they're just missing the forwarding or the and part of it then maybe I'll do that or I'll do that. Like sometimes in corporate, if I do corporate stuff because they're in no butt and cover my ass and you know, like yes. And is like, I'll tell them about yes. And it's out there. Second city's book is the yes. And book, mm-hmm. but it's with corporate people. The first piece of resistance is well, I can see yes to everything. I'll mm-hmm. get fired. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I immediately will say, you know, yes, and is the most important two words in improv, but it's really more of a mindset than mm-hmm. a literal instruction. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, now that I'm 
thinking about it, like I really think it's about moving even these corporate people to acceptance of what is in the moment. Which is, a, you know, I mean, in a corporate context, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Well, you're also going against the grain of a lot of their education and a lot, you know, like mm-hmm. the rules for survival in that particular Institutionalized world. thinking and totally. political awareness and yeah. all that shit. Yeah. There's some, uh, so, sometimes I'll train corporate people and they're like, you know, you get those sort of existential questions like, how can you keep doing this? Or how did you find your way into this? Mm-hmm. And. Um, you know, your life seems so interesting. It's like, you know, half of it is just refusing to quit. I've Mm -hmm. just, I've refused to quit being an improviser. And now if I'm an improviser, what else can I do as an improviser? That's good advice. Yeah. And half of it is I'm completely willing when I work in any corporate context for that day to be my very last day working in that corporate context. Oh, that's interesting. I'm completely, and if I'm working for a consulting company or if I'm working for, um, there's a couple of different training groups. I, I work for training companies. Uh, the aerial group in Boston's awesome, but even it's not like I'm not running a pirate ship, you know, with an anarchy flag and like, fuck everything. It's just, I'm not going to be afraid to make a move because I'm afraid to make a move. Mm-hmm. It's uh, if this is my last day, I trust my instincts enough to say, then this move I'm about to make here, which is kind of nervous, makes me a little bit nervous. And man, this might not be right. I'm going to make that move mm-hmm. because if this is my last day, that's part of my deal for myself. That's interesting. It's uh, but to have that sensibility transferred to a corporate person is really not in line with what being a corporate person is all about. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, what so. Uh, I'm interested in that. I, I teach corporate workshops sometimes, and uh-huh. I, I got to be honest, man. Like, I freak out right beforehand. <laughs> I really, I have like, I get like into like crisis mode of like, I don't, I don't belong here. What am I gonna? I how am I gonna? What am I gonna say? Like, I, it, to me, it's like I love teaching improv. It's pretty much my favorite thing to do. Yeah, me too. But it's also built on, oh, these people want to be here. They're voluntarily here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with corporate seminars, it, I've been in a couple of situations where you find out when you get there that, oh, this is a surprise for these people. They have yeah. no idea. And you're like, oh, <laughs> fuck me, man. <laughs> you know, and, and, and they're just like yeah. completely baffled and terrified and, and hate you and hate this thing. Um, but then, it, like, you end up doing like you'll play superheroes for an hour and it's the best hour they've ever had in their entire lives. And like, Holy yeah, shit, man. Yeah, man. What have you, cause you do a lot of corporate stuff. Yeah, I do. So I guess like, what's your, um, what are you looking to give to them? Uh, I mean, apart from like the basic core of like listening and agreement and all that stuff that we teach. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I give is just to not even, obliging the theme, but the first thing I give them is the acceptance of, uh, and I'll say this, if I, if I know it's like you say, we've all done it. If we teach corporate, Oh, we just found out we're going to improv. So the first thing I give them is acceptance. It's like, however you feel right now, like it's welcome. Yeah. If you're skeptical, it's welcome here. If you're fearful, it's welcome here. If you think this is bullshit, that's welcome here. And it's like, whatever you're feeling right now, uh, you know, they should have told us that's welcome. You're welcome to have that here. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, and then it's in a way, so much of it is so reading in the moment, the corporate people, like, I think I've had enough reps in the gym where I can really read how things are unfolding. And you also have to let go of seeing that you're taking everybody with you Mm -hmm. through a a series of moments. You might have to leave a couple people behind and then being mindful that, okay, I'm going to get them back in five or 10 minutes. It's it's okay. And as long as you said it's welcome, uh, whatever you have is welcome. uh, If you, if you've checked out, you're welcome to check out. If you think this is bullshit, you're welcome. You know, it's fine. Um, And if you make that proclamation at the beginning, then in a way you not only make them feel validated and however they're feeling is right, but it also covers your ass Mm -hmm. because now you don't have to teach from a place of resistance. Mm -hmm. I'm resistant to your negativity. It's like, no, your negativity's here. Why would you not feel negative? Mm -hmm. You're a fucking actuary. Why would you want to do improv? Yeah. You know? Um, and, and then it's after that, it's, then it's just like, well, what are the objectives that you've set forth with whoever the client sure, is? Yeah. Like, well, what do we want to walk away with? So, and typically our corporate workshops are like uh, three or four hours if I'm doing something for IO mm-hmm. 
And it's like the first hour is like, you know, teach them acceptance and then uh, highlight the behaviors of acceptance versus resistance. Mm-hmm. And then speak of that objectively and non-judgmentally. It's like we, we're all wired in a certain way. And this is, this is where the psychology stuff comes in. We're all wired in a certain way. Not everybody's wired the same. <clears throat> and we all give off different signals of acceptance and resistance. But it's still a finite set of behaviors given a group of people. Mm. So can we just be aware of what signals are given off that are signals of acceptance what signals are given off that are signals of resistance. And then if we're going to apply that to client meetings or we're going to apply that to internal communication or we're going to apply that to um, a siloed mentality within a corporation and, you know, we need to promote cross-selling and cross-communication in order to deliver a better end product to them, you know, to the user, the consumer, whatever, then it's once you get that awareness that resistance isn't bad, resistance is just a state that people are in, that shows you that they're stuck, Mm -hmm. then you can come in behind with, now if we're stuck, the idea is to move from resistance to acceptance. And and it's essentially going back into the play mind, which is now now we're there doing what we're doing, which Mm -hmm. is teaching improv, Mm -hmm. teaching them to play. And then once they start playing, then it's shut up and let them play Mm -hmm. and get them through as much stuff as possible. And then you take a break and then in the back half of the, the workshop, then it's what's, what strategically do I need to address that can serve the objectives and the takeaways that we've promised. Mm -hmm. And, uh, part of that then is acknowledging what's there and asking them how might this apply to whatever the list of objectives are. And part of it is, um, knowing knowing where you're going to land in terms of what are your speaking points that connect the dots from improv to what you're doing. And my rule is that that should never be more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. But if you're an improv teacher, every improv teacher knows what it is to walk out of a room and think I talk too much. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. So that's like, I think that's my best my best and uh, very extensive answer. It is. It's, that's a healthy answer, man. <laughs> I, I love that idea of, of starting by yeah. wel- welcoming people to feel the way that they feel and to be yeah. the way that they are. It, it's just such a it, such an empowering way to start anything, a corporate or, or straight up improv class or a fucking show. Yeah, or a fucking show. Yeah, you're having a shitty day. Oh, you know, your dog died. Fuck, man. Yeah. That's cool. Bring it in. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Bring, it to, bring your dead dog to Harold tonight. I, I did a class with Rachel Hamilton a couple of years ago. Love her. She's awesome. Yeah. And she would start every class. You'd have to stand in a circle and one by one, you'd have to say, I feel. And then whatever you're feeling in that moment, uh, um, uh, skeptical, sad, thrilled, nervous, you know, yeah. was, every class started exactly that same way. I love it. It was like a four day workshop. And the first two days I was very resistant to it because as soon as you ask me how I feel, I have no idea how I feel, <laughs> but it got to be like my favorite thing in the class. It, 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 and sometimes like, I don't know how I feel. And, and that would be my answer. And it was like, I realized it was like, Oh, it's just this amazing way of getting me to start from exactly where I am yeah. and, and getting me the fuck out of, expectation mode or, Mm -hmm. or, or starting off by trying to turn myself into an actor at the top of class, (laughs) which never works. No, of course not. Um, it's just like in a really simple way without needing to give too many more notes after that, it just kind of like sets you upright. What, what is, what is real? What is here? Yeah. What, what, what's the truth? Yeah. Yeah, I we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast. But it does kind of make me laugh. I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. it makes me laugh of uh, this kind of meeting point between Dell's Dell Close's like Wiccan yeah. occult yeah. state of mind now kind of reaching the light of day and being like a major part of so many so much of like the corporate mentality is incorporating not only mindfulness into what they're doing but yeah. so many of the kind of like occult secrets of improv for sure are, are are seem to be married to the kind of changing creative culture or like whatever mm-hmm. whatever post-industrial post-information age mm-hmm. we're turning into mm-hmm. that seems to 
be a, a pretty important part of, of how we're learning how to kind of use our brains in, in slightly more interesting ways yeah. or how to cope with the change or whatever the hell's going on. Yeah, or breaking out of institutionalized thinking yeah. and in, institutionalized education. There's a great book that I'm halfway through called um, Out of Our Minds by Ken Robinson, mm-hmm. and he's written a couple, of, um, a couple of books that talk about this type of stuff. But I think it's also, you know, we call it like the Wiccan culty culture of Dell, mm-hmm. but it's really, you know, group mind exists sure. and, and it's attributable to the fact that our right brains, which don't use words, but are rather visual and, um, and, and chart and harness like the emotional connection to the world. They already, our right brains know that we're all connected. Our left brains are the brains of I and me mm-hmm. and our, our left brains know that we're all alone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and provide many words to reinforce to us the message that we're all alone and the only person we have is us. And if you want to do it right, you got to do it yourself Mm -hmm. and all of this shit. And so I think it's, I think it's, I think that group mind does exist. And I think that different contexts label group mind as different things Mm -hmm. and group mind, um, when everybody's connected in a group mind way and in our way, it's improv most of the time. It can provide euphoric results because of the way we play with each other and the, the way that our left brains follow our right brains. Or in a group of people, you may have people that are more analytical and left brain, but you're also balancing out with people that are uh, more right brain and connected and emotional. And the harmony of the group makes it so that all sensibilities can can live sort of... Um, you know, you know, unity is an adorable idea, but really it, life's about harmony. Mm-hmm. We can't all be the same, mm-hmm. right? And, or else disastrous things will happen to our species. <laughs> 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 but, but I think, you know, uh, uh, cults, uh, religions, schools of thought, and even in like the world of psychology, people fall in love with a certain... Um, like the people in NLP, do you know, like neuro, linguistic programming? I was just about to talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Because it's like the baseline ideas are like, oh yeah, people do learn this way and this does make sense and we can learn all different ways. And you know, the, the whole, um, you know, the quantum fact of like encountering new information and sorting the information and anchoring that information and getting practice in the information and, you know, whether it's visually or kinesthetically or auditorily. And we go through this cycle where we now own the information and now we can move that to artistry and like all this other shit. It's like, yeah, this is really this is really on point and there's some merit I think in being able to own that measuring stick and mm-hmm. hold it hold it up against different parts of life but the problem with people is that they fall in love with one measuring stick and then they refuse to consider other measuring sticks yeah like part of the reason um I I, I was kind of not forced, but I found it necessary to learn to speak astrology early on in relationships in my life. Mm-hmm. And though I think it's, you know, it's anywhere from valid to complete nonsense, it's at least a measuring stick that mm-hmm. I'm conversant in and mm-hmm. I'm happy that I have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's people that are like way out there astrology, you know, Nancy Reagan people, just like there's NLP people who like, if you go deep into that world, like everything is right. NLP. Right. Um, uh, and religion, the same thing, or like, you know, there's not that much difference from, you know, snake charmers and speaking in tongues to right, right wing evangelical Christian tea party people and fucking ISIS, you know, it's all the cult mind. It's the group mind. It's the group chance. It's the, uh, it's that shared collective that only gets reinforced by the psychological reality that our brains will always gather more information as we walk through life that reinforces what we already believe. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's cool about improv is it does invite you explicitly or implicitly to consider other points of views mm-hmm. because we have to listen and coexist on stage with each other. Mm-hmm. And the coolest thing about Dell, not the coolest, but uh, one of the coolest things about Dell was even if he was chastising us for being illiterate and not, <laughs> not reading enough is he always encouraged us to uh, go learn something new and we'll come back and talk about it in class next week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the bad news was that means maybe nobody would get up and do a scene because <laughs> <laughs> it's a conversation class. We'll uh-huh. tell. But, but I think with, with anything, there's people that like, they love it. They fall, they get attached to it. And it's like, this is going to be the thing that is my mantra. And I think improv is, you know, the same way. Yeah. Um, and not just improv as a whole, but then like the different schools and thoughts and, totally. and the narrow bands, the totally. way to look at it. Yeah. Well, a couple of things I want to say about that. One is like, 
You know that like peak experience, that flow experience that people talk about. It's always described exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. I it, it the words were coming out of my mouth. I mm-hmm. was doing it, but I didn't feel like I was doing it. Yep. Improv gives you this awesome thing where you get to kind of experience very directly the functioning of that group mind and, mm-hmm. and the quieting down of the left brain and, and just that experience of being part of a larger collective and following the sort of momentum and the will of the group. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you have to wear many different points of view and you have to entertain many different vantage points and use many different measuring sticks. Yes. And so you get this sort of, like in my mind, when you hit like that peak experience, it's almost like this kind of like mandala picture inside of you. Mm -hmm. It's just this sort of perfect union of like emptiness and something in the middle of it. And you're just kind of centered. Mm -hmm. But I think really what it is, is you're being flexible with, with those yardsticks that you're talking about Mm -hmm. um and being able to experience trying on a a system of measurement looking at the world with that system Mm -hmm. dropping it putting on another system of measurement and simultaneously experiencing the kind of group flow Mm -hmm. so in a way you're experiencing i guess a feeling of kind of fullness or wholeness to it yeah well i uh i i completely agree and i think beyond the academic measuring sticks or the uh whether it's astrology to organizational thinking or uh, different modes of psychology I think we over time I know this is true for me and I know it's true for a lot of other older improvisers is we take pieces of everybody we've ever played with and they travel with us and that's another measuring stick and I, I found myself on stage, and this, I started being aware of this once I hit forty. It's like, oh, I'm Dave Pasquazi right now. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, Jill Bernard right now. I'm David Rosowski right now. Oh, I'm I'm Scott Adzit right now. And it's and it's um, and then you realize, oh, that's something that happens. So now you don't even have to acknowledge it. Yeah. You just all of a sudden that person visits you. And your left brain isn't going, you know, I'm, I'm TJ Jagodowski right now. It's just like, oh, I'm listening like TJ or I'm listening like Ed Furman. Uh, all of a sudden you just are. And then it's like it's like everything that person is gifted with is in you for that moment because that's who's supposed to be there. Yeah. And that's the it's both weird and awesome. Yeah. It's I, I love that. Do you think that that has to do with the flexibility of of kind of learning how to use appropriate like yardsticks at different times. Do you think that you get to a point where you just kind of intuitively, your brain becomes comfortable enough without needing the certainty of, of, of like going into a show of like, I'm going to play like Dave Pasquazi tonight. Yeah. It's a different which proposition. Which never fucking works. No, it never works. But like over time, do you think that you just kind of intuitively kick in with like on a need to know basis, I'll be able to now pull this module, pull on this person's personality. Yeah. I don't even think it's like a, co- I mean, the confidence, there's confidence that you can wield a certain uh, weapon, but then there's also the conscious, like the consciousness of I'm in possession of all of this stuff Mm -hmm. and what I need in the moment will be with me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, and it, and I, I guess that's intuitive or it's like, what I wonder is if, if the six of us walked on stage and all of us have our measuring sticks and our pieces of different people's brains that are with us. If we're totally connected would those different moments where one or more of us is borrowing a brain or using a measuring stick, then would that same band of sensibility be transferred to everybody who's on stage with you? That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know the answer, Yeah, but I'd sure like some neuroscientists to do a study about it and tell us what it is. That's the next step, I'm sure. I th- well, the next step is we can go to a bar tonight and talk about it more. That's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's, it, it's, um, you know, if, if there is group mind, which we both believe that there is, mm-hmm. then like, what's the capacity of that? Yeah. What's the, uh, and then what's the difference? I mean, even in like mob mentality, there's group mind, but, but like, I still think they're, they're, there's so much work or research to be sun, be done by those people who will do it around the neuroscience of the interconnectedness of us all. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's group mind and mom mentality, but it seems to operate on a much more emotional level. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you develop this kind of invulnerability because you're part of this emotional tide that everybody's sharing. And right. there doesn't seem to be a lot of thought involved it's just kind of like pure feeling and and you know right well like aggression will breed aggression For like sure. sadness will bring breed sadness yeah 
Um, and like vomit will oftentimes bring more, more vomit. vomit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then you get that thing on stage where group mind kicks in and everybody's had that experience where, you know, I have a very specific thought in my mind and then that's the next line of dialogue you say. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just that eerie thing of like, are we in each other's heads right now? Yeah, and, you know, yeah. like, and I, I think it's something similar to mob mentality, but on some kind of different frequency or some, some different bandwidth. Yeah, it's I, uh, that happens with Mark and me all the time, and we haven't done Bass Prov in a while. But it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, Mark and I I think it's even been a year since we've done our last Bass Prov show. But we show up, and it's once it's there, it's there. Yeah, uh, I played with Susan Messing in Miami a couple of months ago, and um, and it's just like I've been with Susan Messing so much in so many shows and so many different contexts in life, on stage and off, where it's just. I just know her and mm-hmm. I know where she's going and I know it's, and it's even beyond where she's going. It's just like, Oh, I know what I'm in with her right now. Yeah. Um, and I guess in that it's not a, there's really no like agenda. There's no, there's just like presence and connectedness and yeah. the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's, and if you, you know, there's always that temptation to go, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Like while you're in the middle of yeah, it, yeah. but then and you may even get to the point where like you can recover from that moment, but you're going to fuck up yeah. after that moment. And then, but it's like, but I don't even want to, I, I can't even think of that. I won't even congratulate myself for how awesome this is right now, yeah. no matter how awesome it is, because really the goal or a consequence of really having that peak a series of peak moments, those, that peak show, it's like you walk off stage and you have no idea what the fuck happened. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. And it's. And people, you know, like the next hour people come up. It's like, I love that scene where you did it. It's like, oh my God. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember it. What happened? Yeah. When, when was that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's that thing too, where it's like the really great shows you don't remember in great detail. You remember the feeling of it. Yeah. And the really shitty shows you remember in incredible detail. Yeah. You're there for every second of the shitty shows. Yeah. I just read this great book called Brain Magic by Philip Farber. He's he's Uh an NLP guy. Uh Uh-huh. And he was talking a lot about group mind in that and a lot about uh, uh, exactly that, that it seems like group mind is more of our natural default state. Mm-hmm. And this kind of little part in the, in the uh, I think, the hypothalamus that's responsible for a sense of separateness and individuality, uh-huh. it, it, that's the thing that kind of steps in so that we don't feel the schizophrenic sense of constantly being in each other's heads. But Is the hippocampus the part that connects both parts? No, that's the corpus callosum. Corpus callosum. Hypothalamus. So that's tied to our indiv- our sense of individuality? I think so. I may have gotten the wrong part Well, you of the know what we're going to do right after this podcast. No, I do know. <laughs> But it's a really interesting yeah. book, and one of the things that he was arguing for in that is that our brains have the capacity to basically build minds within minds, that you can know someone, you take enough of an imprint, like your wife or your girlfriend, yeah. or your boyfriend, yeah. um, you're around them enough that your brain basically models a kind of mini-mind of theirs. So even yeah. when they're not around, you get this experience, I get this experience all the time. Yep. If my girlfriend's out of town and I'm watching TV, yep. I can sense what her response would be. For sure. And it's this little mini computer in my brain that has just modeled what her brain must be doing. Wow. And so you kind of carry that person around with you. And yeah. there's this sort of suggestion that every now and again, if there's a harmony between this kind of mini mind that's inside of you and the mind of the actual person who's out in front of you, you have this kind of eerie... Uh, thought transference connection. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting idea. And I'm, I, it, it's something that you can kind of sense when you're playing with people that you played with for many years. Yes. Yeah. I was you, thinking you, the exact thing. You feel thing. them inside of you. You feel them inside of you. And you know, when you walk on stage with some, you know, uh, it was like that with Georgia Pacific at IO, like each individual, when I walked on stage, I knew exactly now what this is yeah. because I'm on stage with, with TJ or with Pat Shea or with Bumper Carroll or with Lisa Lewis. It's just like, Oh, it's a me and Lisa. It's a me and Mark. It's a me. It's a, Oh, here we are again. Oh, this, uh, I love Jet Evelis idea that like all scenes are ongoing and continuous. And every time we meet on stage, it's just, it's, uh, the manifestation of something that's already ongoing uh-huh. and, uh, only it gets to be on under lights and then it continues after the lights go off. Yeah. Like, uh, I can barely get my brain around it, but I just, I just love that image. Like our interconnectedness already is, and it's maybe it's like the, the experiencing each other, like what you described, I thought, Oh, it's like, it's like an interpersonal holodeck where you, you know, you have a a copy of 
somebody's brain with you and they all now live in this floating space yeah. uh, that you can access. And then, so now what's the connection between the existence of that and then what uh, the, in the way that you take in that person when they're really here uh, and then how it feeds your response to that person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's, there's virtual them right there or there's literal them right there and there's virtual them in your head. And now, yeah. you know, now what's the interplay? Yeah. And I got more questions than answers. But yeah. Good, love, good questions. Though. Good questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I want to go back for a second to, um, um, the rules, because you were talking about, you know, you develop like a particular metric that you use to measure the world. And then if you go too far into it, that just becomes an obsession, an obsession. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, because I know I've read interviews with you where you've kind of railed against the rules of improv. I would probably argue that a lot of the rules are, are exactly that of developing a kind of system and a language around um this one particular measurement that mm. can be convenient to build a, a starting point, a starting point sure. that you end up sort of fetishizing and, and turning <laughs> into something that maybe has a little bit, isn't quite as important as it seems at first. Mm-hmm. But in particular, the mm-hmm. reason why I bring it up is because I'm kind of curious your thoughts on, I don't know exactly the right way to phrase this. Mm-hmm. I guess to me, um, uh, a show that works or an experience that works works mm-hmm. and I don't really care how it's arrived at or, or or I'm just glad to be part of it whether that means I'm in it or whether it means I'm an audience member watching it mm-hmm. and there's something kind of fluid about that that it's not sort of obeying a structure necessarily mm-hmm. it's just kind of people are in sync with each other and group mind is kind of developing this thing for us I, and I would say I would call that you're inspired you're not obliged okay great awesome you have, uh, I guess, been witness to an awful lot of changes in improv since you moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, what your perspective is on it right now, having been teaching it and doing it for so long. Mm. Uh, how important is it to you that <clears throat> what's what's like the bare minimum of stuff that we need to get together to improvise, and how how much how much of what people rely on to improvise is maybe kind of unnecessary or, or, or do you know what I mean? I think I know what you mean. It's, uh, so I'll kind of go, I'll kind of stream of consciousness with you. So it, so it may be what you're asking is what accessories are necessary for us to improvise together. Much better. And it's, um, So, and, and I appreciate you qualifying to like right now because it's, it, you know, I do what, I, one thing I've learned is like fixed opinions are kind of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's at, 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 at best it's just lazy. Yeah. Um, and so, and especially like going and playing over in Europe and, you know, there's such a huge Keith Johnstone, uh, impact in the world and about how people approach improv <clears throat> that I've. I decided, oh, I'm too judgmental. I need to separate my preference for how I prefer to improvise from my judgment about if something's good or bad. Mm-hmm. Because truly, there's good improv shows and there's bad improv shows, regardless of the framework, the structure, the context that we're improvising in. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes me curious, well, then what makes, is there something that is a common denominator in any approach to improv that yields a good show and consequently then is there anything in any approach to improv then that would yield a bad show and I think that there might be and I think that there might not be Mm -hmm. because part of me says I don't want to see self-consciousness I don't want to see people working I don't want to see people trying but then I see a, a a great short form show. Right. And that's a really important part of and it. And it's all about working and trying yeah. and I might fuck up and it's all built into the context of a failure. Failing as part of the contract come in for short form show. Because if we, if we fail, we're allotting for that. There's a way we behave when we fail mm-hmm. and whether it's awarding points or whether it's a, um, uh, it's something that pushes a button of adrenaline in everybody. So failure is a victory. Mm-hmm. And it's just a different way to deal with quote unquote failure or to look at failure than it is say like in a, you know, you and I do a one hour show, a mono scene, and we're just going to play for the reality of it. Mm. 
um, our relationship to failure psychologically is different than in, uh, which is also, you know, and maybe there's rules or maybe there's, there's something that we discover playing together what specific to us there is no failure or there is no bad choice or you know everything's a gift or whatever mm-hmm. uh rules like that or uh reminders or little you know your poster statements like that come out of like individuals experiences in either doing or watching improv mm-hmm. and so so i have like i have learned uh like i played theater sports now in europe and and it's like i don't understand why we need judges and why we need to um you know uh, get a score from one to five and why the audience has to vote and like i don't know why that's fun and then i met keith johnstone and and it's and I had heard this, there's this taboo thing where like, it's like, you're not really supposed to compare theater sports to wrestling, mm-hmm. but that's exactly what Keith Johnstone's idea was. He was, he went to a wrestling match and he was astounded that a bunch of people in an arena could cheer so heartily for a fake hero and boo so heartily for a fake villain because it's the adrenaline of it. And it's like, Oh, I prefer for there not to be scorers. I prefer for there not to be somebody that's an outside influence on what I do because my junk, my my junk man is me and you go no net for an hour and we just have to fucking figure it out. Mm-hmm. But the other piece of context I realize is that Keith Johnstone is a director and he's a playwright and all of most of the world is more exposed to him than they are to Dell. Mm-hmm. But all of the instruction is pretty much given objectively from the outside. Most of it is objectively and from the outside. And there's always an outside force protecting the audience's interest. And a lot of our advice, a lot of our rules come from the inside out. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I feel? Um, uh, How do I feel? What's a relationship? Am I in agreement? If this is true, what else is true? That's interesting. Right? Yeah. And, and once I began to be able to articulate that, and that was largely with my, my doing some work with a woman named Patty Stiles, who mm-hmm. was like, uh, I've said this before, Patty Stiles is to Keith Johnstone like Susan Messing is to McNapier. Like, mm-hmm. she's the best teacher of his approach. And when we, we met in Austin years ago, people were like, oh, there's, oh, Stiles and Bill are going to meet. Oh, it's fucking Armageddon. Improv Armageddon's going to happen. And we just found out, like, we were both tired of going to the other people's camps and then having to qualify mm-hmm. what we're doing. Because at the end of the day, we're just fucking making stuff up. Mm-hmm. And that's Mick's answer, which on the one hand is like, nothing's changed. We just still walk on stage and make shit up. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, it's... I want to be the guy that, like, before I die, that can objectively describe different pr- approaches to improv without judgment mm-hmm. so, so that an approach to Im- uh, every approach to improv can be accessible to anybody. And then we're just left with, oh, I prefer this way. Yeah. Right now. Right now. Yeah. I prefer this way right Next now. Next month, I might prefer a I different way. I might prefer way. something else. Yeah. I, I did a maestro show, which is another Keith format, which is like 16 or 12 or whatever competitors, and you're just doing different group games. And it's a different type of scoring, but it's like, oh, that's more fun to me than theater sports, and mm-hmm. I do like this. And then part of me is like mindful of the of the Susan Messing idea. Like, if you're not having fun, you're the asshole. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, what if I approach everything, like every improv I would find in the world with that? It's like, oh, if I'm not having fun playing in your way, I'm the asshole. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to be the asshole. How do you play? Why is this fun? Let me learn that. And it's um, and part of that means like forgiving myself for spending a period of my life being so fucking judgmental about, you know, the only way to improvise is like screw puppies at the annoyance, which is get drunk and go on stage and fuck pigs uh-huh. for Santa Claus and Abraham Lincoln. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's it's like there's all different kinds of ways to make stuff up. And, and I think, you know, to your question, it's for me personally, it's like. I want to be able to objectively describe the experience and the approaches to any type of improv so that improv is more accessible to everybody in the yeah. world. Yeah. It's a good answer. And it's a good goal to have too. Yeah. You, you have like periods, I think, where it's very comfortable to immerse yourself in a camp or a school of thought on something. Mm-hmm. And it's very healthy to not do that. And then maybe you go back and immerse yourself and then it's very healthy to like bust out of it. But I think when you're falling into a camp school of thought, yeah, as a as a means of like enjoyment that's great as a means of like having like the one true secret or the mm-hmm. flag that you're waving or whatever mm-hmm. 
it's detrimental to your mental well-being. Yeah, well, and I think it it plays into that, you know, the greatest human psychological need is to be part of a pack, be part of a group. And so, and it's just like we were talking about all the different other schools of thought where people become precious and solitary about this is what I believe and I only believe this. Um, I think it's a necessary phase to be part of a camp. I think it's a necessary... um, it's a necessary phase. Anarchy is a great phase to go through. It's just a horrible way to live your entire life. Um, break, uh, leaving improv for a year and seeing the world and what really exists outside of, outside of our, you know, rehearsal regimen and our class regimen so that I have more to bring back to that is a great idea. Um, uh, and it's, it's funny. One of these, one of these people that I worked with today, they're just like, you know, I said, any, any, any questions about improv? This is a corporate group. Any questions about improv? And one guy said, well, what in life isn't improv? Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is like the dream corporate gig, man. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, it's like, I just, I just want to do, I just want to do more. I want to learn more. I like, I'm so grateful that I got into the game before like festivals really even existed. Yeah. And that I like, I, I really am happy that I've just never quit. And, yeah. and now I found myself just turned 53, 38 years since learning my first improv game. It's like, man, I can, I can go anywhere in the world with this. Yeah. And I should also tag, this is, this will be the first broadcast of this crazy idea. I've been speaking for six months. This is going to happen. I'm now declaring it to the universe. January, 2018, the Antarctic improv festival where every improviser in the world is invited. You have to pay your own way, and I'm going to curate it with a group of people. We're going to have every form of improv, all different types of languages that go down to fucking Antarctica. A woman in France said you should call it Freezing Man. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, uh, and like, I've talked about this to improvisers all over the world and everybody to a person. That would be fucking awesome. Yeah. I would do that in a second. Yeah. So this is the first time I'm broadcasting that idea. I'm saying, God damn it, it's going to happen. And then I can die. January 2018. Holy shit. January 2018. Are you you in? I'm in. Definitely. How many (laughs) chances do you get in your life to go to Antarctica? Go to Antarctica. I want to check the box, man. And I want to do it in a grand fashion. That's fucking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joe Bill, thanks for talking. It's my pleasure. Fascinating conversation. Awesome. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. Uh, this has been the Magma Theater Podcast, which is produced by Evan Ford Barden and engineered by Grant Michael Goldberg with executive producer Ed Herbsman and is recorded at the Magnet Training Center in New York City. We can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about these free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Thanks, Joe Bell. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast.